let's get to it. We're super excited. We have Rachel Hofstetter, who's the co-founder of High Top, who will be interviewing and moderating the discussion today between Mick Hagen, who is the CEO and co-founder of High Top. All right, Rachel and Mick, come on up. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out to Friday lunch. It's really, really fun to chat with you all today. Um, and I'm really excited to get Mick to share his story and what it's like to be on the bleeding, bleeding edge of, of Web3. Uh, I'm going to let Mick tell you most of his story himself, but I'm going to introduce him with something that he probably will not tell you. In fact, I know he will not tell you. Uh, Mick is a, a crypto big deal, uh, and he he's been deep in it for a very long time, built out a lot of important things that you will realize, oh, I've heard of that, I, I know about that. Um, but who here has heard of Vitalik Buterin, out of curiosity, the founder of Ethereum? Okay, so not that many, so that's, that's great. I get to set this up a little bit more. Um, Vitalik is, is a big deal in crypto world. He invented the, the second largest blockchain, something called Ethereum, uh, second largest cryptocurrency. And uh, Forbes magazine named Mick among the three biggest titans in crypto, alongside Vitalik and alongside somebody named CZ, who also founded the second largest exchange in the world. Uh, so, so we're in big company right here in Utah and in Silicon Slopes, and I'll let Mick tell you the rest of the story, uh, but just wanted to lead off with that. So Mick Hagen, please take us away. How you got started, what's your entrepreneurial journey, and uh, how, did, how did you go from there to here? I, uh, first, I'm just seeing my son arrive. That's interesting. <laughs> Slope School is arriving to hear us, I guess, where my kids go to school. Was this is a complete surprise? It's totally a surprise. <laughs> Hi, Sam. It's totally a surprise. <laughs> so now i got to tell interesting stories for Slope School. But I have no idea how I even got selected on that like Forbes thing. Is I'm certainly no Vitalik, no CZ. Um, but I love Web3, love crypto. You know, just a little bit of background. I, In fact, I... Uh, there's a few familiar faces here, but one of which is Mike Garf. We live together in Brazil for a few years there. And, and I'd say, you know, just from a, just based on some life experiences, I've always had the idea of like, how do I create products? How do I create services that can empower people? Um, part of that was my time in Brazil, just being exposed to so much catastrophic and, and sad poverty. And I remember leaving Brazil, coming back to the U.S., thinking there's got to be a way to just like help people rise up and help people be given opportunities. I mean, I think brilliance is equally distributed. There's, there's people that are brilliant and hardworking all over the world, but, but opportunity sometimes just isn't there. And my mom moved to the U.S. when she was 16. She's from Guatemala. So from a young age, there's always just been this kind of underdog mentality in our house. You know, she worked her way up just going community college and state college, and she eventually got a master's while she was raising four boys. And so I've always just had kind of this, a little bit of this chip on my shoulder just around just like, you know, t do everything you can to make the most of every opportunity and how can you help the next person? And so started a company called Zinch many years ago, dropped out of Princeton, started a company kind of in the ed tech space. And in fact, some of you probably know Album Ventures. Sid Cromenhook was one of my co-founders of that company. And it was essentially 
Um, the theme was called I am more than a test score. That was the tagline. And for a long time, universities would recruit and search for students based on just their test scores and based on their grades. And we created a platform where high school students could show their leadership, show their talents, their extracurricular activities, really just all the things that made them unique and exceptional and special. And that ended up growing and working out well. And um, colleges would use it to search and recruit and connect with students. And we heard so many great stories of students getting connected with universities that perhaps they just didn't think they were good enough to get into. They didn't even consider applying because they didn't think their grades were good enough. And it was just so wonderful to hear those stories of, of you know, people getting an opportunity, people um, give, being given a chance. And, and so that was, you know, that was acquired by Chegg. Chegg is a public company now, but that was a great experience. And after that, started doing angel investing. Start, you know, I bought my first Bitcoin about 10 years ago. So this is all about 10 years ago. And at the time, I felt like the young whippersnapper entrepreneur that didn't know anything. And it's wild that now I feel like people think that I know stuff and somehow know more. It's, there's a, I think the, the more experienced I become, the more I realize how much I don't know and how much, there, how much more there is to learn. But um, in 2016, I was, a, and I, we'll turn it back to you to ask more questions, but I'll just say this last thing. In 2016, I was a mentor at Techstars, kind of an ex accelerator incubator. And there was a company that was going through there that was using blockchain technology, specifically the Ethereum blockchain, to create more transparency around giving and nonprofit giving. And this was kind of around refugee crisis. And I started to get really interested in Ethereum because it was beyond just speculation. I mean, I, I first got into Bitcoin. I put it on my Coinbase account and just didn't think about it. But I started to get really interested about this idea that you can build applications that are 24-7, censorship resistant, unstoppable, anybody with an internet connection could connect to. And that really brought me down the rabbit hole of the Ethereum blockchain, programmable money, Web3. And basically since that time, I just keep going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and have not left. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you paused right there because before we go down the rabbit hole, let's, let's talk about Web3. It's a big buzzy term these days, uh, but what does, it, what does it mean? How should we all think about Web3 here? Yeah, and, and y'all, I mean, Rachel's incredible, and she's an incredible storyteller. I actually want to put that back on you, because I know you've given a few recent presentations. What is Web3 to you? And once you answer, then I'll give my answer. But I, I think okay. you, you yeah, answer we'll this very well based on what I've seen. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you share what you think Web3 is? Yeah, so something that's been really important to me in my journey into Web3 is unpacking it back to kind of what I would call base, base principles. And realizing that Web3 you know, makes sense, Web1, Web2, Web3, it's an evolution of the internet. And so I, I really like to think about it. Like first there was Web1. And some of you may be old enough to remember things like AOL dial-up and you would wait and hear the beep, you know, noise. Uh, and then you could read things. It was really static. You would go and you would look at something that somebody had written and say, oh, I can read this. I can take in content. And that's really what Web 1 is. Web 2 was when you could start to both read and write. And so you can think of the social media internet, uh, things like Instagram and Twitter, and you, you can participate more in the conversation. It's becoming more dynamic as well. It's more interactive. And Web 3 is really a natural extension of that. 
Um, and it, it started with the idea of Bitcoin and a blockchain technology, which is a way of participating not just in reading and writing of the internet, but owning. And that, that's the key piece, is as the internet moves along, it becomes more dynamic, more diverse, more decentralized, and now a lot of what's being built in this space is about owning pieces of what we're all collectively creating on the internet. So uh, you start with read, you go read, write, read, write, own. And so everything that's being built in that now, I'm gonna put it back to Mick to continue to talk about, falls under that umbrella of ownership of the internet. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've been part of each of these, you know, web one, I, I built a, I think I was probably the age of some of these, these students over here on Angel Fire and GeoCities, just a website where, I remember my first website that I created had stick figure deaths, kind of just animated, you know, GIFs or GIFs, depending on how you say it, useless facts, yo mama jokes, and it had like breakdancing instructions. And I, and I remember that was my first like website, you know, 1999, somewhere around there. Breakdancing instructions. Yes, That's a good exactly. Breakdancing okay. instructions. I, I loved to breakdance back then, even though I was terrible, I, I enjoyed it. But then Web2 Zinch was this company where students could express themselves and upload content and, and videos and whatnot, and, and now Web3. But, you know, so much of my early Web3 journey was being part of these communities. And we didn't call them DAOs in 2017, 2018, 2019. That's sort of a more a newer term. But it's just this idea of being this community, a, a group of people online collaborating, organizing, and trying to create something. And I remember one of the early communities I was in was, uh, well, there are a number of them, but one in particular was SushiSwap. SushiSwap was a fork of Uniswap. It was, at its peak... What, it, what is Uniswap? So Uniswap is a decentralized exchange. So you can think of like Coinbase, Kraken, these are centralized exchanges. You can use ap uh, applications that are, you know, on a blockchain like Ethereum, like Uniswap and SushiSwap, and you can exchange from one asset to another. Kind of like on Coinbase, you can exchange from one asset to another. And I was so early on that they voted me to be on the multi-sig. And a multi-sig is probably a whole new concept for a lot of people. But sort of like, um, you know, oftentimes these protocols have hundreds of millions of dollars in kind of treasury or in kind of management in terms of, um, and even just sort of keys to be able to upgrade the protocol, being able to, 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 to make fixes and, and make changes to a, a, an application. And I was one of nine. In fact, that's where I met Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX, I don't know, some of you may have heard of him. He was on that multi-sig as well. And there was a lot of drama in the early days of SushiSwap. One of the co-founders essentially stole a bunch of money. The other co-founder was left kind of like, you know, trying to salvage the community. And me and, and SBF were, were kind of in the middle of it, just trying to make sure the whole thing didn't fall apart. Um, but that's how so, I mean, I think it's early days with a lot of these kind of DAOs and these communities and these protocols. And that's often how it is. There's drama, there's... There's chaos, but it, there's something beautiful about people all over the world working together, trying to create something, trying to build something. And um, yeah, I mean, web, and, and we get ownership in that, right? Like you said, we're, I, I cared about SushiSwap because I had a lot of sushi tokens. I had a lot of sushi tokens because I simply was there participating, providing liquidity, doing, you know, providing services to this protocol. And there's something beautiful about aligning those incentives, just being part of a community, owning part of that protocol. And the beauty of SushiSwap is Sushi token holders actually shared in the revenue that the protocol created. And 
I didn't know the founders when they first got started, and there were people there from all over the world. Some young, young people, old people, people all over the world could participate and create and contribute, and they could become owners of that thing. And it changed so many people's lives. It changed my life, you know. It, but I ended up starting a group called Cluster Capital, which sounds like a fancy, like a VC thing. It's just like a Discord group, right? Just the Discord group. Of, but people from all over the world, just friends that I had made along the way. And we ended up doing a lot of investing together. We ended up finding interesting projects, pooling our capital together. And these were people from all over the world. Like I was saying, I mean, there was a, a school teacher. There was a beekeeper, right? Accountants, physicians, you know, just people from all walks of life, different, different age groups, and it was so cool to see the impact that Web3 was having on them, and specifically the, the opportunities, the investment opportunities, the ability to participate and contribute. And a few years into that, many of them reached out to me saying, Mick, you changed my life. Like, you created this group. You allowed us to invest together, share research together. And there was one guy from Italy who said, you know, I was able to fulfill a lifelong mission of buying a tractor in a barn uh, you know, that's something he's wanted his whole life. And I told them, look, I didn't do anything. This is a technology. This is your ability to 24-7 participate in these global permissionless markets. Like, that's not me. That's this. This is what changed your life. And, and I think that it was those experiences that made me think about how do we scale this? How do we take this to the masses? How do we package up Web3? in a way that everybody in the world can use. Because we all know it's not easy to set up a MetaMask, save your private keys, your seed phrase, understand gas fees. Like This is beyond comprehension for billions of people out there. And that was really the beginning of High Top. It was like seeing the impact that this technology had with so many of my friends and thinking about, and, and thinking back to my time in Brazil, it's like it started to click for me. It's like this technology potentially could be the thing that helps people have opportunity, that helps people have access to, to financial services, financial products. And that was the catalyst to be like, okay, let's do this. We're building High Top. We're going to take this technology to the masses. Mick, before we go into High Top, can you break down how was what was happening in Web3 different than traditional finance, both, say, in the United States, but also places like Brazil? Yeah, I mean, the, in so many places around the world, um, there are just a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of, and, and I know a lot of that has good intentions, whether it be KYC in terms of like, oh, you got to upload your passport. You, there, you know, I know that there's, there's good reasons for a lot of these things to stop bad actors from creating products that, that people, um, you know, get scammed I'll, on. I'll right? just add in. So KYC is whenever you open something at a financial institution, they, they check who you are. And so it's a way of making sure that you're not you know, bringing in illicit funds or yeah. things like that. Just an acronym there. Absolutely. And, and, there's, and there's a lot of countries that, are, that just don't have access to financial tools and, and a lot of different demographics that don't have access to financial tools. Because for a lot of big financial institutions, they have zero incentive to open up accounts for people that aren't going to be putting very, money, very much money into those accounts. So th there's just a lot of people out. I mean, even thinking about what's happening in Iran, you've got tens of millions of young people fighting for their freedom, 
but because of maybe the actions of the of the governments and, and different things, those people are sanctioned from access to like financial tools, right? So we cannot offer high top in Iran right now, even though perhaps their people need it the most. Or you can think of in Russia, right? Because of because of the actions of a few of the leaders in you know at the top of the government there, you have tens of millions of people. Who, who are now cut off from the global economic, like financial system because of sanctions. And so there's a lot of different reasons why people around the world don't have access to financial tools, some good, some bad, some debatable, et cetera. But with DeFi and with Web3, all you need is an internet connection, and you can access the ability for savings tools, access the ability to borrow, get credit, access the, you know, to be able to invest in things. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. It's, it's really exciting. I'll also add that DeFi is just a term. It's short for decentralized finance. And it's a way of referring to all of these kind of more traditional financial things, lending, borrowing, exchange, insurance, that exist in traditional finance but are being reinvented now in Web3 Web on the blockchain. Um, I want to give one other example, yeah. actually, I just thought of. I, before I really went down the Ethereum rabbit hole, I went with a number of kind of tech entrepreneurs and executives out to Greece to volunteer during kind of the refugee crisis. And we were specifically going out there to try to help local nonprofits um, to use technology to kind of solve some of the challenges that they were dealing with. And I teamed up with a few Googlers, and some of these Googlers had experience working on machine learning and AI and... Um, and so anyway, at the end of the week, there was kind of this hackathon. And the idea that we decided to pursue was, how can we help refugees work, right? Because a lot of these refugees, they didn't have bank accounts because they didn't claim asylum in Greece. So they were working their way through Europe. They, you know, many of them were going to France or Germany or other places. So they couldn't get work. And that was incredibly demoralizing for so many of them. And so our team decided, well, let's figure out how we can give them work. Most of them had smartphones, refugees. Most of the refugee camps had Wi-Fi. So the idea was, what if we could allow them to do micro-tasks, kind of like Mechanical Turk-type stuff, um, just small, simple tasks. What if, they could, what if we could give them the opportunity to do micro-tasks from their phone and get paid? And the, the people I, were, I was working with, they were connected to the whole like machine learning and like, okay, there's plenty of micro-tasks that we could come up with. We know the vendors. We've got everything lined up. But the one thing we couldn't figure out, and again, this is before I got into crypto, how do we get them paid? They didn't have bank accounts. We knew that if we tried to do cash, it would be a big mess. We knew, I mean, we explored gift cards and whatnot, but that didn't, there wasn't really a system to make that happen throughout Europe. And it was something that frustrated me so much because I knew that we had everything lined up. They could work. They could, ha they could make a wage and, and, and feel like they were, so many of them had families. But we couldn't figure out how to get them paid. It was so frustrating. And that was something that once I got into crypto and once I went down kind of this rabbit hole, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the way that they could have been paid. We could have paid them in a stable coin or paid them in anything. It wouldn't even matter. But the ability for them to hold that value from their phone you know, not, have, not be at risk of losing it from smugglers or thieves as they were kind of crossing borders, moving from one country to the other, that's a great use case for that. And that was something that I thought of as we were talking about the impact that this technology could have. 
It, it's such a huge impact. Um, and I think what's so crazy is that there have always been a lot of financial opportunities for you if you have a lot of money already. Um, if, if you're rich, there are lots of financial opportunities. Uh, I think we all know, like, oh, you have a regular bank account, and you can earn a little teeny bit of interest on it, and, and that's what we kind of think, oh, that's, that's the opportunity. And I had friends a couple of years ago who had sold their house but hadn't yet you know, gone through on their new house, and so they had a lot of money sitting in their bank account, you know, a nice big sum that was very abnormal for them. And they, they get a call from Chase, and it's like, hello, we see you have a lot of funds. We would like to offer you this very special thing. And they were like, whoa, 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 like we didn't even know this existed. Uh, this is much, much better than anything you've ever offered us before. And in some ways, what Mick is describing that can be happening in DeFi is opportunity for everybody, but opportunity to the things that were previously only available to the very wealthy. I think that's really exciting. Uh, so maybe that's just me. Absolutely. Uh, Mick, tell us about High Top and how, how you're going to bring this to everybody then. Yeah, so the idea with High Top was simply like, I know the power of this technology. I know the ability to have yield and earn on your assets, the ability to borrow that is something that billions of people need access to. How do we deliver it to them in a way that they can understand in a form factor that they have, a phone, a mobile phone, from an app store that they're already familiar with, you know, the iOS app store, using language that makes sense? Um, not staking, not seed phrases, not um, these sorts of things. You don't have to know what those are, by the way, so. <laughs> And so it's like, let's build a bank. Let's build a digital bank that speaks their language, payments and savings and loans. And let's try to solve their use cases, use cases that they already feel and know every day. And so Hightop is a digital bank. Now, obviously, we're not a real bank. We don't have a charter. We've had to partner with real banks on kind of the back end to be able to offer things like a debit card. But... That's the idea is instead of making people come to us, you know, us being Web3, instead of making everybody, billions of people come down the rabbit hole like we have, let's just come out of the rabbit hole and let's, let's bring it to them on their terms, where they are. Just as most people don't know, you know, TCP IP or HTTPS and all the protocols that we use every day, I think the billionth person that's using Web3 is not gonna know what Web3 is, or care what Web3 is, or care what DeFi is, or care what SushiSwap is. They're just gonna be able to earn yield on their assets and be able to borrow against it. That is huge. When is it coming? I, you tell me, Rachel. <laughs> You're the one that knows better than I do. Rachel really, like I'm the crazy ideas guy, but Rachel's the one that actually is, like, helps us execute, and what Make do you think? Well, I, I think the billionth person is happening here in the next four or five years, but uh, when high top? Yeah, so I'm really excited. So, yeah, we, did, we launched last year just to accredited investors. And trust me, that has pained me every step of the way because this vision is about mass market consumers, especially the people who are not wealthy. But um, it was a very successful launch, had about 100 million assets under management in the span of five months just with accredited investors. But all of this year we've been working towards, from a compliance standpoint, from a re-architecting kind of our flow of funds standpoint, to launch high top to the mass market, to the retail consumers. So I would say it's going to relaunch Q1, 
but so much of this year we've been building out more of the infrastructure. Like I am a nerd. It takes a, like I all this year I've been in my basement just writing code, building out smart contracts. Rachel's the one that drags me out to stuff like this. My son can tell you I'm literally like coding like anytime I can. But we've been building out a lot of this infrastructure so that we can automate so much of what we're doing on the DeFi side. Uh, and that will help facilitate kind of unlocking high top for the retail market and consumers. And so, yeah, Q1, let's make it happen, Rachel. We will. And I want to invite all of you here to be among the first to come in. Um, if you go to hightop.com, you get on the wait list, and, and we will get you in there ASAP. Mick, you said you're, you're the crazy one deep in the rabbit hole. So I want to know, if you, as you look around the future bend, uh, what, what's the big crazy thing that's coming next? Yeah, I mean, I, again, this idea of how do we take Web3 to the people where they are, you know, most of them don't have crypto punks or board apes like I do. Most of them don't have Bitcoin like I do. What do they have? They have homes, they have cars, they have small businesses, maybe they have farms, maybe they have land, maybe they have livestock, maybe they have equity in companies and public equities. They have art, physical art. They have watches. They have sneakers. I mean, th these are assets that people have. How do we unlock more productivity on the assets that they have? And so much of the infrastructure that we've been building is really about that in mind. There's so many, and we're not going to, Hightop's not going to be the one to tokenize all the things. We're partnering, we're working with many companies that are tokenizing real estate, tokenizing your car, all the things I just mentioned. But we're really building the rails and the infrastructure so that as those things get tokenized, as more of your real-world assets get tokenized, you absolutely will be able to earn yield and borrow against those assets. You will be able to participate in DeFi, in these 24-7 global economies whether you know it or not, or whether you care for it or not, we're gonna unlock more value and more productivity for your assets. And that, to me, it changes the world. Like, that to me is exciting. That, that is how we change the world. That, that is so exciting. I feel like there's a moment there where we have to go, whoa, okay, this is, this is really exciting, Mick. Um, before we open it up to q and I'm going to ask Mick one more question here, but you can start thinking about where, where you want to dive in here a little bit. So we'll be doing that after this. Uh, Mick, something I've been wanting to learn from you is you are, you are on the bleeding edge of things. And not only on the bleeding edge, but you often choose the right things. Uh, you're on the thing, bleeding edge of things that go on to become really big. And how can we take, learn from you to do that in our own, our own industries, our own spaces, uh, be an early adopter where it matters for each of us? Yeah, I mean, for me, so much of it is just my curiosity, my desire to learn and explore. And that's hard to teach. I don't know, right? Like, so what does that mean? It means diving in to, like... Like diving into a DAO, getting into their Discord, asking, how can I help? You know, if you're a good copywriter, say, hey, can I help write some copy for the documentation on this cool protocol that you're doing? I had a few friends fly out last week. They're working on a thing called Krauss House. Essentially, it's a DAO. Some of you may have heard of the Constitution DAO a year ago or so, where it's like, we're going to all 
pool our funds together and we're going to buy the Constitution. Like Nick Cage is stealing the thing from wherever it was in that movie. This really happened and Mick did try to buy the Constitution. Yeah, and so I participated and we were all in this DAO trying to buy a copy of the Constitution. We ended up getting outbid by like Ken Griffin, the Citadel founder or something. The thing with the DAO is it's hard to... Like, he knew exactly how much we had raised. And so it was easy for him to be like, okay, I see you guys raised 60 million. I'm just going to do 61 million and I'm going to buy the Constitution. So total, you know, you know spoiled the punch. But, um, but anyway, I was talking about Krauss House. They're, they're saying we want to buy an NBA team. And I know there have been different versions of this, but just I think with so much of it is just if, you're, if you find a DAO, you find a protocol, you find something that's interesting to you, just jump in. Be a contributor. Ask how you can help. And you just never know where that's going to lead or the people you'll meet, the things you'll learn. So I'd say, like, that's probably the best advice I have is find something that's really interesting to you, jump in, start contributing, start showing up. But beyond that, I think it's the obvious stuff. It's crypto Twitter is big. I mean, Twitter is absolutely kind of the home base for people that are in Web3 and crypto. Finding the good lists to follow, finding the good people to follow. I have a few Twitter lists that I have public because so many people have asked me, who do I follow? And I said, well, I've already created five different lists. If you're into NFTs, follow this list. If you're into DeFi, follow this list. So you could, fi- you could find those public lists on my Twitter if you're just looking for a place to start. But yeah, there's a lot of Slack groups, Telegram, group, Telegram groups, Discord groups, um, some good blockchain publications, so these are kind of the obvious things. Just like if you if you want to find it, go and find it. And Rachel and I are happy to help you find it. But I think so much of it comes down to curiosity and your desire to learn. Like this is absolutely the future. And I know I'm drinking the Kool Aid, but if, if you want to set yourself up for the future, this is absolutely where I would say you should be spending your time. That was great. Be curious, find something that interests you, and jump in. That was great, Mick. Uh, I would love to take Q&As for Mick here. So we'll, we'll start there. Hi, appreciate your story uh, and your enthusiasm. Uh, issue with crypto, there is the security issue, uh, for one. Uh, blockchain or not, uh, encryption is breakable. Uh, this year uh, alone, three billion has been stolen in crypto uh, so far this year and in the first two weeks of October, 712 million were, were hacked away and stolen away. Some of that might get recovered. The government's sitting on most blockchains. My question to you has to do with the crypto and the perception. Because crypto, if you buy crypto because it's going to go up, well, what is backing that except for somebody else's willingness to pay that price to get it? So there's nothing behind it. And you can argue, you know, uh, fiat, maybe, maybe the U.S. government's not strong enough, strong enough to back our, our currency. But what, uh, how can you overcome the perception problem? Yeah. Now, the stable coin is one way. I don't, but anyway, if you could answer that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, you know, so, much, so many people out there think of crypto as kind of the specula- speculation use case. It's you buy low, hopefully sell high. You hope that the number goes up. You hope that you're buying the right thing. To me, that is the least interesting part about this technology. Now, certainly I speculate and I participate in that, but 
most billions of people around the world, like that, that it's not that that sort of activity is not suitable for them. It's too risky. They might lose like a lot of money in that. So I would say the things that are more interesting to me are things like, oh, I have access, I, I can participate in lending and borrowing protocols. I can lend my stable coin, right? And allow somebody somewhere else in the world to borrow that stable coin, over collateralize. The way that most lending and borrowing ha works in Web3 is that a borrower has to put up collateral. And because you're using smart contracts, if that collateral reaches a certain threshold against the loan, it will get liquidated instantly, right? So everything that happened early this year with like Celsius and Voyager and a lot of these, the issue is that they were lending, they were doing loans with hedge funds and kind of centralized counterparties that just simply said, trust us, look at our balance sheet, we're good for the debt. Whereas with DeFi, there's no trust, it's code. You either put up the collateral it holds its value or it doesn't. You're going to get liquidated. So I think things like lending, things like borrowing, things like stable coins, payments, insurance, you know, these are use cases that go far beyond speculation and number go up. And these are use cases that I think absolutely are um, suitable and appropriate for billions of people around the world. But I get it. Like crypto's taking a big hit. It's going to take time to earn, to earn people's trust, to earn... You know, but again, I think ultimately most people will ha will never even hear the word crypto, and that's okay. They'll they'll be using products that use the technology that doesn't even mention crypto, and that's totally fine. I don't think there's anything special about the word crypto or the words like Web three. Ultimately, I'm here to build value in people's lives, regardless of what the technology is. That's I don't know great. if I answered your question. <laughs> That was great, Mick. Thank you. So you just said uh, earlier that uh, you finished a, uh, a funding round. Can this vehicle be a way of funding uh, companies like this? And is that an SEC thing for the U U.S.? If that is, then can we do it offshore then? Yeah, I mean, th this is recorded, so I have to be careful with what I say because I, I, um, I absolutely love the ability that I love what this technology unlocks in the sense of people all over the world can participate in different things. Constitution DAO is a great example, right? Like you didn't have to, you know, upload your passport to participate. You didn't have to be an accredited investor to participate. You had people putting in as little as $10 to as much as millions of dollars. And essentially it was like we're crowdfunding, right? For, we're going to buy the Constitution. We're going to crowdfund this and we're going to buy the Constitution. And I love that. That is special. I hope that regulators create a way in which that's possible here in the US. Obviously, there were a lot of ICOs in 2017, 2018, and there was a lot of scams and frauds and bad actors. Um, but I hope, I hope that there gets, I hope we get more regulatory clarity on that. Because a lot of entrepreneurs um, would greatly benefit from those types of uh, opportunities. So I think the SEC, I, I, think, I think regulators could shoot themselves in the foot or they could not. Hope, let's hope that, you know, I've, I know I've done everything I can to donate to politicians who, who are on the right side of this, but it's really hard to say. I, but, I, but the technology absolutely can unlock it. I think the laws here in the U.S. aren't quite where they need to be. Mick, appreciate you coming in today. Fascinating conversation. I'm 
like to follow up on this question of regulation. What gives you pause right now regarding regulation, first in the U.S. and then OUS, as far as this whole idea? We'll just start with DeFi. Forget about the rest of it, because you did say yeah. we're not a bank. Yeah. Well, for us, for High Top, I mean, we're, we're, because we work with banks and because we work with fiat, we are highly regulated, and that's okay, and I don't have any problem with that. So when a user signs up for High Top, they upload their passport or their driver's license, and we check their, you know, if they're on the sanctions list and all the things. So on the High Top side, we are a centralized company. That, is, that should be expected. We're custodial, right? We're trying to make it as easy as possible, and so we have made the deliberate decision that the best UX is one that's custodial. One in which the user can say, I forgot my password, can you send me a new password? So for us, we're willing to make that trade-off. But I think that the option that consumers have should be that, you know what, High Top, we don't like you anymore. Send, us my, send me my money in my own wallet because I want to be my own bank. I am sufficiently comfortable with being my own bank. Send, me, send it to my crypto wallet. That optionality, I think, is so important, and it keeps companies like Hightop or any, you know, Coinbase's of the world, it keeps them honest, and it keeps them accountable. And if they start doing dumb things with your money, you can say, you know what, I'm taking it. Send it to my wallet, right? So I think that optionality is really important, and if, if regulators eliminate that option, then all of a sudden it feels like we're starting to create the same system that we had with Wall Street, where you've got these big incumbents like Coinbase or maybe someday like High Top, and it's just, you know, fine, it's the same, it's, it ends up just being a good old boys club of the same kind of thing, but new, you know, new, you know, young entrepreneurs like me or Sam Bankman Fried or Brian Armstrong, and, and that's just Wall Street all over again. So I think what, there's, there's um, the th so where I would draw the line is protocols absolutely should remain untouched and unregulated because these are immutable smart contracts, applications that are on the blockchain. It's ridiculous to say that somehow a application that is immutable and censorship resistant needs to register with anything. Like it's a piece of code and it runs on its own. I think front ends, we'll call them web apps, websites, that allow you to interact with those smart contracts I also don't think those should be regulated. If, 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 if the front end is really just kind of like a portal in which the user can then interact with a smart contract, they're, like, that, 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 I don't think that should, you should have to be licensed to do that. But again, if there's a custodial portion of it, like what we do, absolutely it needs to be regulated, needs, you need to be licensed and whatnot. So that's kind of where I think of it and I draw the line. And Finance needs to be open for everybody. It needs to be available for everybody. It's money. Thanks, Mick. Okay, so I have a two-part question. The first one is, are there specific projects, technologies that you are most excited about? Uh, I feel like today it's kind of similar to the tech bubble where you've got uh, crypto, DeFi, a lot of things kind of crashing, and then there's going to be some strong ones that emerge. Um, I, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball and you can't predict the next Amazon or Google, but I'd love to hear which types of projects you're most excited about that you think have staying power for the future? And then the second part of the question, sorry to cram it in, is um, you mentioned crypto is treated as a risky asset. 
do you see a time when it can actually function as uh, a hedge against inflation and not just be um, dependent on the sways of money supply as risk on, risk off? Those are great questions. I'll, I'll take the first and the second, or you can take either one, Rachel. Rachel's, I'm sure, has thoughts on this. On the first, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit about what excites me around, um, instead of telling people to buy on-chain assets like NFTs and Bitcoin and whatnot, it's thinking about how can we just bring their off-chain assets like the home, the car, et cetera, but bring the benefits that DeFi can offer. So like tokenization of real-world assets, I think that's coming. I think that's soon and hopefully, so you can imagine it like inside of High Top where you're buying a house, right? Like that's essentially back-end would be DeFi or you're getting a home equity line of credit, back-end would be DeFi or a car loan, et cetera. And because you can, you can create these stable coins um, using smart contracts, you can essentially have the cost of capital be effectively zero, right? Like there's not a lender on the other side of that if your land or your house is the backing for that stable coin. Um, so I think, I, think, I, I think the types of use cases that, that um, help people in the real world, earning yield, being able to borrow, get credit, I think I'm really excited about, and so that's an area. But the one that I didn't, but I kind of already mentioned that before. The one, that, the other one is payments. I think being part of high top, being, you know, peeling back the onion of banking and and <laughs> the card networks and all the basically the people that take their pound of flesh every time there's a swipe, just makes me think payments is going to be highly disruptive. Being able to just check out at a store using a stable coin or you know, you know, using blockchain technology for that settlement where it's instant, it's right there. That's gonna save people a lot of money. It's, it's, I mean, it's just gonna be a better user experience. So I think payments will be a big use case. And the minute we get solve payments collectively is the minute that we can really start taking all of finance over to these modern rails. Because if people can get paid in crypto, and again, I use that in, People don't need to know it's crypto, but you get paid your paycheck on an app like Hightop. It's USD, but underlying could be using stable coins, crypto. And then you're able to go buy your groceries and buy your thing on Amazon with that same kind of rails and infrastructure. Like that's, that's the future right there, where it's like it all uses the crypto kind of Web3 rails. You get paid and you can spend. I mean, now we can really kind of shed the baggage of old finance shed the baggage of Wall Street. So, so that's a use case I'm excited about, payments. I think High Top has an opportunity to be at the forefront of that. We'll, the, you know, we'll be the bank for the consumers. As we grow, we'll be able to set up merchant deals so merchants can accept it. Um, so that's a use case. But Rachel, do you have any thoughts on what use cases or projects excite you? I love all these things that help real people in real life, like Mick just said. And I, a lot of times, I, has anybody here ever remodeled a house? I don't know, I have. It's, it's really hard and messy and not great because you're always making compromises. It's always like, ah, well, this wire already goes here and this pipe goes here and I have to build around what's existing and I'm not making the most ideal choices. And a lot of what I think is exciting around what's coming next is kind of like building a house from scratch. And you can just build things in the right way and put the walls where they should be and you're not kind of having all this baggage like Mick is talking about. So I think that is where the future is, is anything where you can build from scratch and, and make it better from the ground up, like payments. 
Oh, is that yes? We never answered oh, the yeah. second question. <laughs> I, I think it like for things like Bitcoin and ETH, it just those just feel like those are not you know hedges against inflation. I know that was the narrative, but I don't think they ever will be. They're risk on a- assets. Like it's just that's the reality. But it is what it is. I don't think that that narrative has to hold for this technology to be successful. But certainly that narrative kind of has crumbled over the last year or so. Um, I just wanted to thank you for, for all of your insight. We've been using you as an example in a lot of what we do. We're democratizing the carbon credit industry where we're using satellite images, NFTs on blockchain to be fully transparent so that a small shareholder farmer can collect a carbon credit. Love it. Wow. So I, I, I just want to speak up. We use you guys as an example because we run up against all these old legacy, you know, uh, you know third-party verifiers. When we said we are the third-party verifier because it's an NFT and a blockchain that anybody can look up, our farmer takes a picture, you know, of, of what he's been doing in his farm. The metadata is all there. And, and it's just been, it's been interesting, but I wanted to thank you for what you're doing. And that, and that we're you. one of those end use cases. That's amazing. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. That's so great. Uh, let's do, I think, one, maybe two more. So we'll do one and two, and then I think we're, we're nearing time. I'll get the so, signal. But. Hey, um, thanks, Mick. Um, I want to ask you, where do you see the, the crypto space going forward regarding fragmentation that we see now in so many blockchains over there. Uh, there are a few big ones, many small ones coming, uh, and a few tiny ones coming up every day. Uh, where do you see that going forward? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think there will be different blockchains for different use cases. You know, I think there will be some blockchains that focus on um, latency and throughput and speed, and maybe those are the types of blockchains that are used for gaming and media and social media, things like that. I think there will be other blockchains that aren't as focused on throughput and speed, and they're maybe more focused on security. They're more focused on making sure that this can be a settlement layer for trillions of dollars in value. I would consider that something like Ethereum, where certainly it's a little bit more expensive to do a transaction, it's a little bit slower, um, but it's pretty secure and it's you know it's pretty strong it's pretty resilient and it's been tested you know throughout a long time at this point they just did a big upgrade a few months ago to proof of stake so i i think there will be many blockchains i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far to say there will be thousands of blockchains um but there could i could see a world in which like every major application creates their own blockchain perhaps where as a as a way to maybe capture more of the value so maybe there's an amazon chain maybe you know maybe there's a, a whatever an apple chain who knows um so, so that would be the only way in which i see like there's a there's thousands of blockchains is if like a lot of the big companies essentially create their own but for the most part i would say there's going to be ultimately there's probably going to be like you know dozens of like winners at kind of the lowest level of blockchains that have different trade-offs, different focuses, different kind of features that, that can do different things depending on your use case. That's, what, that, that's how I see it. Yeah. Let's do, I think there's one question back here. Um, with you mentioning that your wallet is going to be um, custodial, um, would there be, um, well, because you want to provide a, a good UX, would there be any 
hope in the future to support a, a self-custodial wallet with, you know, for example, um, Coinbase has a partial sharding of their um, seed phrase. Giddy, does, you know, is looking into that just to not have to sacrifice on the UX, but still be able to provide the a self-custodial experience. I would say it's possible, absolutely, but really, you know, we're here to think about billions of people. And so it might just be that we're not, our target is not the people that want to be their own bank. And that's okay, and there's great applications for that. Our target is how do we take this technology to billions of people? And so I would say maybe. I'd just say it's not our focus. Um, but certainly it, we could end up, do, there, there might be reasons around regulation why we move in that direction as well in terms of, um, so far, the regulators have had a very clear line that anything that is self-hosted, essentially if you create your own wallet, you, you're your own bank, you can do whatever you want. So there might be reasons like that where we move in that direction, but really we're, our, our hearts and minds are set on how do we bring billions of people into this technology? And they need a forgot password. They need it. That's the truth. Okay, oh, we've my, got one important oh one here. Uh-oh, what's this question from my son? Um, what, what advice do you have for young aspiring entrepreneurs? Oh, that's that a great, great question. That's a great Ooh, question. Let me repeat that in the mic. <laughs> what advice do you have, Mick, for young aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, and this is something that I know slope values. And I would just say, and I mentioned this a little bit before, it's just stay curious. Just continue to have this appetite and relentless pursuit for learning and just absorbing information and leaning in on the areas and, and the, the things that excite you. Um, because I think ultimately entrepreneur, I would say the most resilient entrepreneurs, of course there's always exceptions to all the rules, but typically it's really hard to do a startup. It's really hard. Like there's this constant obstacles, constant friction, constant setbacks. And so oftentimes it's the entrepreneurs that, um, just love the problem space that, that keep going. It's entrepreneurs that enjoy the work, enjoy this, the thing, that are um, passionate about it. And, I, and I know it's like, oh, follow your dreams, blah, blah, follow your heart. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, it's hard to be an entrepreneur. And so if you don't love the general problem space you're in, it's just, it, it'll be easier for you to say, eh, I'm gonna go do something easier, do something else. And, but it's that, it, but it's that curiosity, it's that learning, that helps you maybe discover the thing that you're like, wow, I really love this. So stay curious, stay learning, and have a love for learning, and you might find things that you just didn't know you loved. I don't know. I know that's super cliche, but your guide will help you kind of figure that out. Uh, thank you for the perfect last question. That was, that was great. Thank you, Sam. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Before we end, I do just want to point out some high top people in the audience who also can geek out on, with you on more questions after this. Jake, can you raise your hand? And Camilla standing on the back. So they are also true experts in this space and can geek out with you all day long if you have more questions too. Uh, Mick, thank you for sharing everything today. And thanks thank to Silicon Slopes for having us. Bye.